Welcome to the Humans of Nutrition podcast brought to you by Nutrition Talent, a consultancy and recruitment company specialising in the provision of nutrition expertise. I'm Dr. Danielle McCarthy. And I'm Anna Wheeler. This podcast delves into the world of nutrition to help unlock ideas and collaborative action so that everyone can thrive. Today we are joined by Sarah Berry, Associate Professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at King's College London. Sarah's research at King's is into its third decade and her focus is on food components and how they affect our risk of cardiovascular disease. She also works with Zoe, who described themselves as the personalised nutrition programme from the world's largest nutrition science study. Sarah is the lead nutritional scientist on the PREDICT programme. In recent years, her team's transformational approach to research into personalised nutrition, the integration of big data and citizen science has brought never-seen-before scale, breadth, depth and precision to nutrition science, blowing open our scientific understanding of the complexities of how food impacts our health. We are beyond excited to chat to Sarah today. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. As Danielle said, we are really looking forward to this conversation and for, you know, to to really find out more about your exciting work in in personalised nutrition. But before we delve in, where where are you calling in from today? Uh, So I'm calling in from London and thanks, Danielle, for the great introduction. I think I'd quite like to copy this and use it for my bio going (laughs) forward. (laughs) No problem. I'll send it to you. Excellent. Um, so I'm I'm calling in from Colchester. Danielle's in Northern Ireland. So we're we're all over the place having an absolute you know brilliant virtual chat. So thanks again for joining us. Um, if we dive straight into, I think what is my first question is mm-hmm. around your research on personalised nutrition. It really is pushing the boundaries. So first of all, would you be able to explain that term for for, for me and for all of our listeners out there um, in the context of the research? You know, how would you define this? Yeah, so it's an interesting question, um, an obvious question, Anna, but actually there's no clear definition of what personalised nutrition is. And some people use the term precision nutrition, some people use the term personalised nutrition, um, you know, to mean different things or the same things. And the way I see it is there's a very traditional approach to thinking about personalised nutrition, which is really tailored advice based on your biology, you know, based on your genes, based on your microbiome, um, you know, and so much more. But I actually think personalised nutrition is about much more than just your biology. I think personalised nutrition is also about personalised according to how you live your lives. And I think this is where we need to be moving in the field of personalised nutrition. So thinking about our food preferences, what what shapes our dietary choices, but thinking about that day-to-day uh, variability and all the noise that we have in our life. And I think we should be personalising, therefore, based on who you are. So we should be tailoring to your biology but we should also be tailoring to how you live your lives absolutely that sounds like a brilliant description and it really fits in with a lot of the conversations Daniel and I have about various projects that we're working on as well so absolutely yeah that sounds brilliant Um, and then in terms of this this term citizen science and AI I mean it's all so new and so exciting I wondered if you could just explain that term citizen science and how you bring these things together in your approach to how food really impacts our health. Yeah, so citizen science is, I think, a relatively new term that's brought around from the overwhelming opportunities there are from all of the kind of novel technologies out there where 
people from the comfort of their own armchair can take part in research and so what they can do is they can use all of these technologies that are out there whether they're wearable devices such as Fitbits or Apple watches or the kind of trackers that you have on your phone or they can do remote clinical testing for example wearing a continuous glucose monitor or or doing a finger prick blood sample or sending off a saliva sample for DNA or a stool sample um, uh, for your microbiome and so what people can do is they can share back to either researchers or they can share back to um, companies that are collecting this data. The companies and the researchers can learn from the individuals but also in a bi-directional process feed back the findings and the data to the individuals. So this way people are contributing to, to science as citizens. And the I, th I think that COVID has been a really big shift in people's mind thinking about their immediate, you know, morbidity or mortality and and has really caused a bigger explosion than even before in citizen science. So I think there's two things that are triggering this exciting era. For me, as a nutritional researcher who can conduct remote trials, because we have these novel technologies, but also because people at the moment are becoming more and more interested in finding out about their health and also contributing to science. Absolutely. Um, yeah, gosh, it is so different from those times, you know, whenever we were doing human intervention trials and it was, you know, trying to recruit and get people into clinical, um, you know, trials and, and, you know, you could maybe get 20 people in in the morning that were fasted. Now, you, you know, 20,000 people can take part. It is just, it's just blown it open in quite a short period of time. It's so exciting. Yeah, Danielle, you know, before I started on the PREDICT research, I was running N of 20 studies. So these are studies uh, with which people would be coming into my clinical trial unit. They would involve about 20 people, randomised crossover trials. They would take about a year for me to do these 20 people studies and recruiting them was an absolute nightmare trying to recruit people. <laughs> we have now, yes. as of yesterday, just hit 45,000 in the PREDICT studies. And this has only been going for three years. So in three years, we've hit 45,000. And we're actually recruiting people into our PREDICT 3 study, which is leveraging all of these remote technologies that I just talked about, at a rate of 1,500 people a week. Now, it is piggybacking on a commercial product, so it is slightly different. But this is where I think that exciting opportunities arise. And so to think that we're collecting data and high precision data and you know I, I often talk about this real paradigm shift that we're in in nutritional research where previously we had to rely on these really small clinical trials that were really high precision like my previous RCTs um, or we've had to rely on these really large epidemiological but really low precision and it's only now that we can get the precision and the scale which is by leveraging these big data opportunities from all of these novel technologies so I think it's it's a really exciting time to be in nutritional research but I would like to uh, caveat this as I always do that it's still important to conduct some of those small mechanistic studies in a clinical setting. They're still highly valuable alongside these large citizen science projects. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you, when you study people in the context of their own lives, you know, rather than in that clinical environment as well, yeah. you know, the relevance of that data to implement in the future is just, there's, there's not as much of a gap either. It's, you know, so that scale, but also that relevance for application for everybody later on is, yeah. it's so powerful. Yeah, I think that's so important. So a lot of the, 
uh, what I almost call sort of proof of principle, tightly controlled, randomized controlled trials that are conducted in metabolic settings. Actually, when you apply the results to that noisy way in which we live our lives, they often don't play out. And a great example is time-restricted eating. You know, it's a hot topic at the moment. There's lots of trials coming out about this. Um, and we're seeing that there's some efficacy of time-restricted eating um, when it's done in this really tightly controlled way. But actually, who wants to finish eating their food at three in the afternoon? And so when you then apply it to the real-life setting of what's actually feasible for people to do, but also the noise in which they live their life, do those results actually play out? And this is what we're able to do with all of the Zoe work that we're doing. So we're actually launching um, in October a time-restricted eating study. It's called the Big If uh, uh, study um, and we're asking people who are signed up to our Zoe Health Studies app so we currently have about a million users of this app to take part in this study and the whole purpose is to be able to look okay how does it play out in the real world how does time-restricted eating work who does it work for does it work in the noisy way you live your lives is it actually feasible to eat in this way and I think that's really really important and that's why I think we need these big citizen science projects alongside the very tightly controlled traditional smaller scale RCTs. And is this trial going to be looking into into weight in particular this one? Um, so this elements? is exclusive yeah this is an exclusively remote study um, it's mm. um, Within the platform called the Zoe Health Studies platform, which was formerly the Zoe COVID Symptom Study app. So it's yeah. um, a platform where people daily log all sorts of symptoms, not necessarily related to COVID, but generally how they're feeling. And we're inviting people, if they'd like to take part in this study, to follow their typical diet for a week and then for a two-week period, which they can extend if they want to, to reduce their eating window down to 10 hours so that they're fasting um, for the, the remainder of the time. And then every day they'll record uh, on the app how they're feeling, their mood, their energy, their, their hunger, which previous studies have found are affected by time-restricted eating. They'll also record their yeah. weight if they want to, um, and that will be recorded at various intervals. But the main purpose yeah. is, is to think about how it's impacting how they feel. And that's really innovative in itself, actually, to not have that end point as something as traditional as weight. So really yep. thinking about how people feel is that's that's really exciting as well, I think. Well, you know, I'm a great believer that if in order to make sustainable changes to your diet, your lifestyle and therefore your health, it needs to be something that makes you feel good at the same time. <laughs> Um, and so yes, this is what's absolutely. great with, you know, some of the work that's been coming out the last few weeks from time-restricted eating studies have actually been more around hunger and mood and energy. Mm. And so we have the perfect platform in which we can capture this, which is really exciting. Yeah, I've been logging every day since the app started pretty much. So I'm one of your Yay. one million plus <laughs> people. <laughs> You're one of our super loggers, yeah. Anna. I, I hope you'll do our TRE wow. study. A oh, big if study when oh. it launches. <laughs> yeah, you may have to convince me that I have. Yeah, because I like my food and it all times of the day. So I may take what? a bit this, more convincing. This this is the purpose of it that we want people that th that perhaps don't think they can do it to give it a go. And actually, mm. if you can't do it or you find it just doesn't work for your life. That's really important data for us because we might yeah. find that there's certain ages, certain sexes, you know, and this is where the personalization comes in as well. We might find there's certain groups of individuals 
that find it really, really easy, depending on all, you know, we're collecting lots and lots of other data. And yet we might find for the Annas of the world that <laughs> it just doesn't work for. And actually that's really important yeah. because there's no point having any of these public health guidelines for people if it only, not just works for some people, but more importantly, if only some people can adhere to it. Definitely, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, I shall look into it some more and make my mind up. <laughs> I hope I've convinced you. <laughs> yeah. I think Anna, I mean, it does, I, I'm, I'm going slightly off on a tangent, but I think it brings up two really important points around personalization that I feel are often overlooked, that people think about personalized nutrition just about building an algorithm, giving someone this algorithm diet, let's see, does it improve their health? But I think there's two really important um, elements of personalized nutrition. One is all around adherence. So we know that less than 1% of people actually follow the key UK dietary guidelines but we know that delivering in a personalized way dietary advice improves adherence to guidelines and then the other feature of personalization is that whole thing that we talked about earlier you know generating advice based on people's biology and how they live their life and so you know these are two important factors and I think that first factor is really overlooked and this is what we want to achieve for example with the big if study and some of our other platforms is look at what works for what people not just in terms of health outcomes but in terms of what can people follow yeah oh it really is so innovative and so exciting yeah we'll be looking out with interest in you know the results (laughs) of this study thank you Um, but we also wondered if you could tell us a little bit about um the findings of your the series of predict studies because these are also fascinating and would you be able to just summarize some of your research in this area please yeah, so um, uh, Zoe, who uh, formed about five years ago, have conducted a series of personalised nutrition studies, uh, namely the PREDICT-1, the PREDICT-2 and the PREDICT-3 studies. And uh, these are all leveraging those technologies. We talked about these all remote clinical trials. And what we aim to set out to do is to look at how much variability there is between individuals, what's causing this variability, and can we predict people's outcomes based on these exposures and so the key findings are that there's huge variability which won't surprise anyone but we saw up to like 20 fold differences between individuals so we saw that most people didn't sit sit around the mean you know the average uh, response point but that there was huge variability we also see that there's multiple different exposures, so multiple different determinants that are, are responsible for this variability and that different determinants differ depending on the outcome. So for example, we'll see that some factors are really important for determining the variability in let's say our our blood sugar response, but different factors will be important in determining the variability in for example, our blood fat responses. Um, And the way to summarize, I think, best given that you probably don't have two hours for me to go through all my results or maybe two days is another day maybe break it down (laughs) (laughs) we could do a whole series (laughs) the way I like to break it down is that it's what you eat yes is important who you are is important and how you eat so it's those three key areas so it's what you eat and not just the nutrients you know that we've typically thought of but also the food matrix so that the structure of the food it's who you are not just your genetics we actually find the genetic contribution is quite small to shaping most of our responses to food um, we find that the microbiome is important we find the age sex all of those other characteristics are important 
And then we also see that how you eat is important. And this is what I referred to earlier, the noise in which we live our lives. So we see, for example, how much sleep you've had impacts how you respond the next day to a food. We see your meal ordering within a day um, you know, it, it impacts your response. So what you've had for breakfast could shape your response to what you have for lunch, for example. Um, uh, we see things like eating rates important. We see that the time of day is important. And so it's kind of an overlay from what, who uh, and how, I think is the best way to summarise all the findings. Oh, it is so exciting, Sarah. It really is. You know, I think... You know, I'm absolutely a believer in, in all of those things. And I know we, we chatted last week whenever you, you were speaking at a conference that I was at. And, you know, I think there's also those elements of where we are and who we're with. I, I, after the conference, I went to stay at Anna's and certainly the noise levels are different in our lifestyles. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it absolutely changes like where I was and who I was with definitely changed what I was able to do in that environment compared to other environments. So, you know, just all of those questions this research can start to begin to answer, which will just absolutely make what each of us can do in our own lives easier um, in terms of trying to help us go on a positive health journey. I guess that's one of my questions is, you know, when you see all of this data, how does it impact what you do, like with your family and with you yourself? Are there any results that you have that have really made you sort of stop and go, oh my goodness, I need to do something? Like I, I do remember back when I was doing my PhD and getting my HDL tested as part of the, you know, let's give some mm. blood to be the control. And actually mine was really low. And that was a kind of, oh, stop, think, what am I going to do differently? What's happened? Has there been anything that's happened for you? And what's made you adapt things in your own life from your research? Um, that's a good question. Um, and... I would say that having worked in nutritional research and run trials for the last 25 years, I've had very little interest in self-testing. But um, I did recently uh, take part in the PREDICT3 study, which is the study that's embedded within the Zoe commercial product. So I got sent a test kit and I tested all sorts of things from my gut microbiome to my blood fat, my blood glucose responses and a, a lot more. And as part of this experience, I wore a continuous glucose monitor for two weeks. Now, Previously, I'd been a little bit sceptical about, um, you know, over-focusing on one metric. And I still would say we must not over-focus on one metric. However, when I wore the continuous glucose monitor, it actually explained so much to me that um, quite often I get very hangry. Um, quite often at certain times <laughs> in the day, I'll feel like irritable. I'll feel slightly shaky. I'll feel a bit, you know, sluggish, um, you know, just a, a bit rubbish at odd periods. And... And when I looked at those times at my continuous glucose monitor trace, I could see that I was having glucose dips. And so it's actually been quite transformative for me because it's changed the way I eat to stop those dips because I hate feeling that horrible kind of crash that I know people sometimes talk about sugar crash, but I'd never really believed it until I saw in real time my own sugar mm. crash. And so I found that really interesting. And we've actually done research that we've published on sugar, on the blood glucose dips um, and where we've seen that you have some people are what we call big dippers and some people are what you call small dippers. And the people that are big dippers, you know, ha are less alert. They do go on to eat more. Um, they are more hungry, etc. And so I think that's one change that being able to see in real time a true physiological 
you know, biological measure together with how I'm actually feeling at that point. I think that's been my biggest single kind of eye opener to that's really shown me, even though I've researched this for 20 something years, that, wow, it really does make a difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the fact that you've done the 25 years and then you're seeing that now like that, I guess, is showing how transformative this is, yeah. you know, for you as a researcher, you know, seeing and feeling that. And I think it's those two things coming together are just you know, that that's what just gets you so excited as to what the future is going to be in this in this area. And um, I guess it's thinking about then, how do we start to bring this out to society? You know, like we have public health messages and, you know, that 1% figure is like, that is phenomenal. And, you know, the, the situation with health disparities, all of these things, you know, the, there's lots of issues with trying to get those public health guidelines adhered to what's your thoughts on the future of that in terms of you know with science developing in this personalized way versus what we've what we've made the best use of our what we've had before in terms of those public health guidelines that are that are population based where's the future in that kind of world do you see yeah so i think there's two important points to pick up on here first is a, a point that regarding i think that whole population versus personalized approaches and the other point i think is the accessibility and application at the population level of personalized nutrition so if i could just first met, give you my thoughts on the first point which is i think an area of a lot of great controversy in the field of nutritional research where people are either in the population health camp or it's well population-based guideline camp or they're in the personalized nutrition camp um, and it frustrates me a little bit because I think we can harmoniously fit the two together I think there's a place for both and so I often use this example that there's some nutrients such as fiber that everyone should be given the same advice for we all need to increase our fiber or, or you know and apart from many maybe a very few subgroups of people it's going to improve your health but then there's other instances. So, for example, should you be following a high fat or high carb diet where everyone's response is very different? And so I think this is where we can use personalization to overlay population based guidelines. One does not have to be exclusive to the other. And, you know, seeing all of the kind of controversial Twitter comments out there, you know, why can't we all work together and find where does population based guidelines fit best and where can we use personalized nutritionists and overlay? And then the other part of your question, which is what are the prospects at a population level? I think we're at slightly early days for being able to apply it at a population level. You know, we I have to kind of be realistic and say that, you know, most personalised nutrition products out there are expensive, they're not accessible to everyone. But I think where the really exciting possibilities lie is all of the learnings that we're making along the way. Um, from all of this data that we're collecting will allow us, I believe, in the future to be able to develop potentially very powerful stratified recommendations. And by stratified, I mean uh, recommendations based on clusters of characteristics. So we're already seeing this again in our own PREDICT research where we can give quite targeted advice without even doing tests on people based on pe whether women are pre or postmenopausal, as well as some other characteristics that we could ask from a questionnaire, for example, without needing all of this 
biological sampling. Now, it's not going to be to the same precision as if we were to do the biological sampling, but it means that the more and more we learn, the more we hope we'll be able to give as precise as possible advice based on some key characteristics. Wow. So you could have an Anna grip and a Danielle grip. (laughs) (laughs) But that that is fascinating, you know, and I guess that's something that's in my own heartland is how do we make sure that from the learning of the science, we can impact everybody's health in in a relevant way. And, you know, often the commercialization of science, I've seen it myself in my career, you know, it it can be designed for those that can afford it. And I guess that's kind of, you know, our you know, from from our code of professionals and how, and how we work is making sure that we are constantly thinking, how do we apply this um, to mainstream to everybody? So there's access for all. So, you know, that that stratification and that hope that this will impact everybody is just so, so very important. Yeah. And I think, Danielle, something else that we're working really hard on is thinking about the why. You know, I talked about the who, the what, the how. Why are people making those dietary choices? Is it their built environment? What, what you know, is it their culture? Is it their emotions? is it the society other societal impacts and we need to understand that we've known this obviously in nutritional research for years and public health research that we need to understand that but we can even personalize according to the why and you know it's a challenge that we are we ever going to reach all sectors of society probably not so we you know I'm accepting of that but I think that if we can do our best to understand the why and you know what I talked about Anna with you about the time restricted eating studies it's kind of a light touch of that but I think that if we can do that I think that will help massively any way that we can help to make it easier for people uh, the better but yeah it's and actually something else while I'm thinking about it as well is I think a great example of how maybe we are at an even more exciting time than we think in this transition in in um, the implementation of public health advice post-COVID. You know, pre-COVID, the thought of everyone doing these um, lateral flow tests and, you know, at home in order to go anywhere or do anything, we would have thought was crazy. But actually people just became very quickly used to doing it because they realised if I don't do this, I can't do this. If I don't do that, um, you know, I may very quickly become ill. And it is that kind of immediate, seeing something immediate, just like I said as well with my continuous glucose monitor, seeing something immediate in real time like COVID forced us to do shows that actually I think it is possible to change at a population level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, agree entirely. <laughs> oh well, worryingly, we're already getting to the end of the time that we've got with you, Sarah. And we've we had a few more questions, so we'll have to we'll have to jump forward, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, one of the things that we really wanted to talk to you about, you know, considering the name of our podcast is the Humans of Nutrition, you know, how do you do it all? I think that's what we want to know. <laughs> we know you know you're a mum, you're a world class academic, you're running multiple studies, <laughs> the different types of studies, such an incredible amount of data. How do you manage to keep yourself motivated? How do you manage to do it all? And have you got any top tips for the rest of us? 
Well, <laughs> if I'm honest, I'm bloody exhausted most of the time. Oh, a but, bit of real life, that's good. <laughs> but do you know what? I am, it sounds almost so like geeky, but I'm so excited by what I do. Every hour of the day is so different. You know, I'll go from this podcast to doing some very serious science to doing something else that's equally as, as exciting. And so I do actually feel like I get to do my hobby every day. And I actually, unlike my husband, who on a Monday morning is as miserable as hell, I wake up really excited Ooh. to pack the kids <laughs> off to school, not just because they'll have probably done my head in over the weekend, but because I'm so <laughs> excited to get back to the work. So, you know, my dad always used to say to me that if you can find... Oh, I'm sorry. I had something going off in the background. I'll redo that. So my okay. my, dad, my dad always used to say to me, if you find a job that you love, you never work another day in your life. So I don't actually feel like I work. I get to do my hobby every day. Um, but it is hard. It is hard juggling work, juggling being a mum and some things slip. And what probably slips is that I'm not very good with doing kids homework and I'm not very good at cooking nutritious meals, which, you know, I'm being very honest about considering I'm a nutritional scientist. They get given a quick 10 minute meal at the end of <laughs> after school. Oh well, hear ye, hear ye. That does not. That makes me feel really good, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> and a great place, you know. And I think that's it. It is, you know, it's trying not to make, you know, good. What's the phrase I'm looking for, Anna? You always know it off by heart and remind me of it. Yeah, don't don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's it. I just for motherhood and professionalism and you know all the rest of it. I think that's something that you know, it's great as a great mantra to, to keep remembering. Yeah, and Anna, this but is... how fabulous. Oh, sorry, go on. I was just gonna say how fabulous it is to hear you say that, you know, you love going to work every day. That's really inspiring. Oh, thank you. And I think a really valuable lesson I've learned professionally working at Zoe is picking up on what you just said, Anna, don't, what is it? Don't let perfect be your enemy. Um, don't let perfect be the enemy of good okay um don't let yeah. perfect be the enemy of good so the one of the founders uh, at zoe george who's an inspirational person to work with um has this uh mantra that we should just strive for 80 percent and you know yes great if we can get to 100 percent, but 80 percent is good enough and that enables us mm. to be agile that enables us to say okay 80 percent is good enough let's take the chance and occasionally not going that extra 20 percent, we might fail on something but embrace that and this is what we do a lot at zoe and that's why we're doing stuff uh you know so fast because we're being courageous in thinking okay we're not perfect we're not quite perfect in everything we're doing we're making chances taking chances but I think that's what really professionally for me has been a big game changer as well uh, and that's something that I think a lot of us can really take on board uh, it takes the pressure off in a way you know we can still mm -hmm. achieve great things without being perfectionists which I think a lot of us in yep. the profession can be I know that's something that Danielle and I have struggled with in the past you know we want things to be perfect before we put them out there um, so I think that's a really good mantra to take forward. Um, so I think I can probably only fit in one final question. And I think that has to be, what is the future as you see it? I mean, we are discussing, you know, some really innovative stuff, but how do you envisage your research could be implemented over the next decade, for example? And what do you hope might change as the result of your research? 
So I think we're at super exciting times with the continued development of more novel technologies for us to understand not just how we respond to food, but also understand what we're eating. And this is something that I think typically in nutritional research has not been given the due respect, that if we can't accurately understand what we're eating at a really granular level, how on earth can we understand what we, you know, how we respond to it? So there's lots of exciting technologies to try and get better understand what we're eating. And I don't mean the old fashioned kind of logging dietary assessment. There's lots of exciting novel technologies allowing even greater remote testing. So I think that the field of citizen science and the big data at precision, breadth and depth is going to expand rapidly. That excites me. Something that I'm particularly excited and hopeful for the future in terms of of nutritional research around personalization is real-time contextual data and I know I've touched on this already but the ability in real time to be able to say okay Danielle you were up with your kids last night I know that you're tired today you are going to be craving because of that more sweet stuff you are also because you've slept badly going to have a worse glycemic response to your standard breakfast so here's some suggestions based on how you're feeling right now um and to be able to deliver advice, almost like having a dietitian in the back of your pocket, uh, would be exciting. I do need to caveat that with the fact that we don't want to have health or food anxiety. We don't want to forget the mm. pleasure of food. So whilst I think that's a really exciting um, uh, potential development, I am uh, you know, putting my hands up to also say, hey, let's be also a little bit relaxed about all of these things. And the future, I think, again, going back to what I said earlier, is with the more data we collect, the more we're going to understand what really matters. Is it our age? Is it our genes? Is it our microbiome? Is it our sex? And then hopefully we can deliver more targeted advice based on some really simple characteristics of individuals and most importantly targeted so that we know it actually makes a difference because it might be the advice I give you, Anna, versus what I would give Danielle makes a massive impact for you but if I gave the same advice to Danielle makes only a small impact and therefore she's not going to feel motivated you know to follow that advice so if we can deliver advice that we can see quite quickly outcomes as well I think is going to be really motivational for individuals great oh thank you so much there's so much so much excitement to look forward to (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, definitely a podcast of hope and, you know, imagination and all those things. Sarah, thank you so very much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I knew it was going to be amazing to chat to you. It always is. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Danielle. And thank you, Anna, for inviting me on to your new podcast. I hope it's a great success. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Humans Nutrition Podcast, proudly brought to you by Nutrition Talent. Nutrition Talent is a consultancy and recruitment company specialising in the provision of nutrition expertise. For more information about us and how we could work together, check out nutritiontalent.com. 